Well, good morning. God's Guide to God is the name of our new summer series here at Twin Lakes Church. My name is Renee, one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. I want to invite you to grab your message notes that look like this, or you can also download them at tlc.org slash notes. And as you take these out, I want to tell you a true story this morning. I grew up here in California, but I was raised by Swiss immigrant parents, and I loved my Swiss heritage. Well, summer after I turned 16 years old, I did an internship for the three months of the summer at a radio station in Switzerland, and something amazing happened that summer. It was August 1st, which is Swiss Independence Day. That's a national holiday like the 4th of July here in America, and so I was not working at the radio station that day, but I got a call, a surprise call from our station manager. He said, get in here now if you want to meet the president of Switzerland. He said, we just found out he's going to be visiting our studios because his home is in our little town in order to broadcast his national Independence Day message to the entire country. And so I was so excited because this particular Swiss president. His name was President Fergler. Fergler. He was uh, known on the international stage uh, at the time because he was the one who arranged the first meetings between President Reagan and Gorbachev of the former Soviet Union in Geneva, Switzerland. So he was a pretty big deal for a Swiss president, and I was so excited to meet him. I dressed in such a hurry that I forgot to put on deodorant. An oversight that turned out to really matter when I was told after his speech, Renee, the president of Switzerland just told me that he would like to invite you to join him and his family for dinner at the fanciest restaurant in town right now. You don't have time to go home and change. And I remember thinking, is this some kind of a weird nightmare? The president of a country is inviting me to dinner on the one day of the year that I forgot to put on deodorant. And believe me, I was a 16-year-old boy, no deodorant. I was very nervous. I stunk. And then it gets more interesting because at the dinner, he asks me to sit right next to him. I remember moving my arms only from the elbows up for the entire dinner. <laughs> trying to cap my B.O., you know, kind of like, could you pass the salt shaker? Renee, it's right in front of you. I know, I, I can't reach it. I, I kept nervously calling him, like, Mr. President. And finally, in an incredible moment, he looked at me and he said, Renee, I insist you call me by my first name, Kurt. And I did. In fact, I probably overdid it. So, Kurt, how do you like the fondue, Kurt? You know, can you pass me the spoon, Kurt? It's right next to you. I know I can't reach it. It was absolutely surreal. But I think of that experience whenever I read the passage of the Bible that we are in today because something like that happened only on an infinitely greater cosmic scale. In our passage, God says to Moses... Call me by name. Did you know that God has a name? 
Well, let's talk about it this morning in this new series, God's Guide to God. We are doing a deep dive into one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. If you're new to Christianity, these verses are going to help you discover what it's all about. If you're sort of a veteran Christian, these verses are going to reignite your faith. Now, let me explain why, and I'll explain using this example. Have you ever heard of word association? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of word association, right? Word association was introduced to the world by a psychologist named Carl Jung, who, I might proudly add, was Swiss. Just saying, they're all over the place. But um, word association is this. Uh, Psychologists to therapists will say a word, and then you respond with the first word that comes to your mind, even if it's not the word that you're kind of like supposed to be thinking, right? It's literally the first word that comes to your mind because that tells you a lot about you. For example, if I say the word mom, what's one of the first words that comes, comes to your mind? Just shout, shout some words out. What's loving? Dad? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I hope you would say loving, but a lot of people might say uh, another word. You know, you might say kind. Uh, that's great, too. But you might say unlovable, uh, unpleasable, critical. I have friends who would say that, who honestly would say that about, you know, mom, and that reveals a lot about their relationship with your mother, obviously. Or let's say I said the word California. What are some of the first words that come to your mind when you, when you say the word California? Right, sunny, beautiful, uh, you know, gorgeous, but you might think weird, expensive, and your response to the word California probably tells me a lot about how long you're going to be living here in California. <laughs> now, if I said the word God, I hope you would say loving, but I can tell you that for much of my life, if I was honest, I would have said words like demanding, disappointed, indifferent. And this is so important. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because he says, we become like the God we worship. Just think about that for a minute. If you worship a God who is unpleasable, then that's kind of the kind of Christian that you become. If you worship a God who is constantly critical of people who are not keeping the rules, that's the kind of person you become. If you worship a God who is indifferent to people suffering, kind of distant and removed, that tends to be the kind of individual that you become as well. If you worship a God who is a warrior and is bent on conquering, then that's what you become, and you just need to look at the history books to see that that's true. So what do you think of when you think of God? Maybe the more important question is, what do you think God wishes you would think of when you think of God? Well, you don't have to wonder because we actually have that in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is God's self-disclosure. What God says is most important for you to know about him. And I've been greatly helped in this message series by resources that I list at the end of your message notes at the top of page two, especially this book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. 
You can pick it up in our bookstore in the church lobby after church if you want to dig into this a little bit more deeply. There's a lot of other great resources there. But for the next eight weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into just two or three verses in the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. So let me give you some context on this. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It comes right after Genesis. And the setting is Israelites in the desert right after escaping slavery in Egypt, on their way to the promised land. Their leader is Moses. The context is he is tired, angry, and super annoyed. Show of hands, how many of you can relate to this right now? That describes you. How many of you, that describes the person sitting next to you right now? No. Um, Moses is tired, angry, super annoyed. Why? He fought a return to normal pre-slavery life would be over by now. And it is all taking so long to get back to normal. Can you relate to that? Plus, he's super annoyed about how high maintenance the people are around him. They're supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to know better. Instead, they're constantly rebellious, constantly complaining. So Moses is like tapped out. He is ready to quit. He is exhausted. He needs to get refueled. And so he goes to God in desperation. And to set this up in Exodus 33, 18, it says, then Moses said, he says to God, he's already gotten like, you know, the rules from God and the directions from God. But now he says to God, God, now show me your glory. Can you say that sentence out loud with me? Show me your glory. In ancient Hebrew, glory meant presence, and beauty. Moses is asking to see God for who he really is because he realizes, watch this, what he needs to get through this is God. Not knowledge about God. Not just rules from God, but God. He needs a life-giving connection to something more beautiful and bigger and more powerful than, than everything he's facing. He, what, what, what Moses needs is, it, 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 you know that sense of awe and wonder that you might feel when you're standing on the brink of the Grand Canyon or we're standing at the foot of one of the most giant, several hundred foot tall redwood trees or when you're standing at the ocean in the midst of a storm, you're seeing the big breakers or, or you're holding a brand new little infant baby and you're overcome, you don't even know why. You're crying and laughing at the same time. Moses is like, that's what I need, but that's just a trace of what I need. What I need is to find a path to the source of all that wonder and awe. I need you, God, I need you, God. And I'm not gonna be able to get through what I'm going through right now if I don't tap into that. And maybe you came to church or you joined our live stream today and you feel the exact same way. God, I'm done. I just need, I need you. That's what I came for. I need you. So, next morning, Moses gets up early. He's an old man, you know, and this is a sacrifice for him. But he climbs all the way up to the top of Mount Sinai. And I, I picture him just standing there with open arms and closed eyes, whispering, God, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And in the next verses, one of the most amazing things in the Bible happens. 
It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. That's right, God has a name. Did you know that? And it's not Mr. God. <laughs> and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, now just soak in this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What we just read, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Other writers of the Bible quote it, paraphrase it, sing about it, write poetry, including these very words, argue with God about it, over and over and over again. In Jewish culture, it's huge. Orthodox Jews pray these two verses every year, several times before all the high holy days. These two verses are like the John 3.16 of Judaism, someone once said. And yet, they are some of the least quoted and known verses in Christian literature. When I went to seminary, I got a master's degree in theology. In my theology books, these two verses are barely mentioned. So let's change that right here, right now at Twin Lakes Church. Are you ready for this? Here's the shape of this series that we're about to start. We're going to study these verses Literally line by line, we're going to go one attribute that God mentions each week. We're going to start with a, a, a word study of what the word actually means in Hebrew and draw out some of that information. Then we're going to go to a place in the Bible where this passage is either quoted or illustrated. And it'll be different TLC pastors each week. Some of the weeks it'll be me. Some of the weeks it'll be other pastors. And by the way, I, I, that's very strategic and very important I really want to fight the perception that Twin Lakes Church is all about one teaching pastor. This is about a team. We can't do this. I can't do this without the whole team being in harness. These pastors are going to be amazing. we got a guest pastor coming in, Jay Kim, but mostly it'll be pastors from our staff. They're all younger than me, which I've noticed is increasingly inevitable. But <laughs> they're also very skilled at what they do. But you know what? They need experience to get even better. So what I want you to do is to show up every week, join us on the live stream every week for the series, because this isn't about them anyway, it's about the, the, the truth in these verses, but be wildly supportive of them. Send them encouraging emails, show up, listen, take notes on them. You know why? Because by doing so, that is one way you can make Twin Lakes Church even stronger. And God is going to powerfully demonstrate to you that it's not about the speaker. It's about the, the inspir inspiration, the inspired words that we're going to be studying in this series. Does that sound like a plan? Are you ready for this? Are you ready to launch? Then say, let's launch. Let's launch. Here we go. I like what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, I do not want my image of God. I want God. Don't you love that? 
And that's what Moses is saying to God in Exodus 33 and 34. God, I've heard from you. I've heard about you. I've seen your miracles, but I really, really want a connection with your glory. And God goes, okay, here it is. So what is it in these verses that God is revealing about God? Well, I see three important things. Jot these down in your notes. These are huge. First, God is saying, I am personal. I am personal. And by personal, I don't mean that God is a person in the sense that God is a, is a creature or human. Of course not. I mean, God is a personal being, not just a vague force. In fact, what I love about this passage is how different it is from what you and I might expect. John Mark Comer points it out in that book I refer to, the way we usually refer to God when we're describing God, like in, in my theology books, right, when, when, I, when I got my degree. We start with what Comer calls the omnis, like God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He knows all. These things are true biblically. I absolutely believe these things and rejoice in these things. But you know what's interesting? When God describes God, that's not where he starts. The way God describes God, he starts first with his name, just like you might introduce yourself. We're going to see that in a second. And then he goes on to his personality. Of course he does, because this is exactly how you would describe someone that you know and love. If you ask me to describe, for example, my wife, Lori, I don't say, well, she is uh, 5'7", she is a human being, she is of Northern European ancestry, she has dark hair and light eyes. All that's true, and I love that about her. But what I start with is her name, Lori, Lorianne. Love that name. And then I go to what I see as her glory. I saw she's so, so faithful. She's so smart. So smart. She loves researching. She loves traveling. And she is such an amazing mom. She loves and sacrifices for her family in astonishing ways. And then I will probably tell you a story about one of the ways she has done something amazingly self-sacrificial for her family. In other words, what I will tell you when you ask me about my wife is what makes her her, right? That's the way you'd introduce somebody that you love. And God describes himself exactly the same way. He's saying, here is what makes me, me. All those other things, the theological, you know, attributes of God, they're all true, but here is my glory. And he starts his introduction, just like you and I would, with his name. Now, we're going to do a deep dive on this for about five minutes, do some kind of word study, seminary-level, Bible college-level stuff. But hang on, because there is going to be, I think, a big emotional payoff. See, when, whenever you see the word L-O-R-D in all caps in the English Bible, not just the L being capitalized, but all four letters, L-O-R-D, capitalized in the English Bible, that is actually a Hebrew name that L-O-R-D stands for, and the Hebrew name is not Lord. What, what they're doing there is they're substituting those four letters for a Hebrew word that is the phonetic equivalent of the English consonants Y-H-W-H. -H. 
Now, ancient Hebrew had no vowel markings, so we're not exactly sure how this was pronounced. But the best guess is Yahweh. Now, you may have also heard the name Jehovah. That's just an alternate spelling of the same word because Jehovah, we mispronounce it in English, Jehovah, because unlike almost any other language, we say J and V, J and V, Jehovah. But in most languages, you would pronounce this Yehoah, Yehoah, Yahweh, Yehoah. The Hebrew scholar Ron Allen believes that this was pronounced like a breath, like Yahweh. And when you say it, you magically hear chimes. It's amazing. It's like magic. No, it was pronounced like a breath. You breathe in, and then you outward. Try it with me. Isn't that cool? When you hear everybody saying it together, try it one more time. God's saying, that's my name. Now, what does it mean? It's a form of the Hebrew verb to be, and it means simply, I am. And Ron points out how poetic it is for it to be pronounced like a breath because it means I am. It means God simply is. God is always in the present tense. Nothing threatens his existence. Never has, never will. God never was not, and he will never cease to be. God does not need anything to exist, unlike, by the way, the other pagan gods at the time who could die and who needed our sacrifices to survive, allegedly. God is saying, I just always am. I actually don't need you or anything else to survive. I I always am, and my existence will never be threatened, and my existence never was not, right? (sighs) He just always is. Now, if that's true and that's pretty cool, why is it translated L-O-R-D in all caps in our English Bibles instead of Yahweh or Yahweh? Well, because one of the Ten Commandments is, do not take the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, Yahweh, in vain. Don't misuse this name. Treat this name with reverence and respect. So, in an abundance of understandable caution and reverence, centuries ago, many Orthodox, devout Jewish people began substituting other names for Yahweh when reading the Hebrew Scriptures out loud. The most common was Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. And so this Jewish tradition carried over into Christianity in our English Bibles so that now whenever Yahweh appears, the translators follow that Jewish tradition, and instead of Yahweh, it's translated as the English equivalent of Adonai, which is Lord. So whenever you see Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps in your English Bible, it is actually Yahweh. Got that? Now, here's the problem I have with that. Unless you know what's behind this, unless you know what I just explained to you, I think that translating Yahweh every single time as Lord robs the text of, of, of its intimacy and power and kind of emotional potency. 
Because, Lord, I believe God is my Lord. I call God my Lord. He is Lord. But Lord is a title like Mr. President. And this is the call me Kurt moment of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you have to call God Yahweh all the time. Of course, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's not wrong to say it with respect. First of all, all through the Bible, there's verses where God says things like, this is my name forever. This is the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So it's not wrong. He literally says it is not wrong to call him Yahweh or Jehovah. But the point is whether you call him Yahweh, Yahweh or not, the point is to not miss the, the, the emotional you know, texture of this verse, which is that God wants a personal relationship with us. God is not soulless or distant or uncaring. You know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a, an instance where there's somebody in your life uh, that's a regular part of your life, like, like, like the UPS guy, Right? And at one point, you ask the UPS guy, hey, what's your name? That's Bob. And from now on, it's not the UPS guy anymore. It's Bob. Hey, Bob. And just knowing Bob's name, you start asking Bob, hey, how's your family? Oh, pretty good, except, you know, my wife's in the hospital. Oh, really, Bob? I'll be praying for you, Bob. Suddenly, when Bob ceases being the UPS guy and becomes Bob, you, you've got a relationship with him. Well, well, what God's saying in this passage is, I'm not the God guy. I'm Yahweh. You can call me by name. I'm not indifferent. I want a relationship with you. So God, God is personal. But then the second powerful thing I see here is that God is saying, I am different. I am different than all these other gods you've known before. See, the Israelites had been surrounded by Egyptian gods. They were about to be surrounded by the Canaanite gods. And God is saying in these verses, I am not like them. What God's doing is deconstructing their false images of God. For example, Set, S-E-T-H, was one of the many hundreds of Egyptian gods. And Set was the god of of destruction and chaos. He was a murderer. For example, in one of the stories in Egyptian mythology, Set tricks one of the other Egyptian gods into lying down in a coffin, and then he seals the coffin shut, and the god dies. That's one of their gods. And he's like, yeah, that's one of the best things about me. I trick people into being killed. So by the way, life tip, if somebody with the head of a jackal ever comes up to you and says, try lying down in this coffin, don't do it, right? So what God is saying in this description is, I'm not like that. These other gods are temperamental. They're distant. They're unreachable. They're weird. And God is saying in these verses, that's not me. Right? I abound in love. I'm a God of compassion and grace, as we will see in this series. And you and I also need to let these verses deconstruct our own false images of God. You know, deconstructing is a term people use these days to describe sometimes leaving their faith. But I think deconstruction can also be the road toward reconstruction of a more mature biblical faith. In fact, let me give you some of my own images of God that I've had to deconstruct in my own life, and maybe you relate. Try these. God as strict librarian. Now, I'm sure there are awesome librarians out there. If you are a librarian, please do not email me. I am outraged. But I am telling you, when I was a kid at the Cabrian Park Branch Library over in San Jose, California, 
the librarian there had it in for me. No matter what I did, I felt like I never heard her talk. I just always heard her do the librarian sound, which is what? Shh. That's right. And she was always pointing to the sign. No talking. No backpacks. No drink. No food. Which amounted to no fun, as far as I was concerned. And for a long time, this is how I thought of God. The key word? Rules. Rules are what librarians care about most, apparently, and also what God cares about most. And many of you grew up with this image. Mostly what you got out of your youth group was things like, thou shalt not play Dungeons and Dragons. Thou shalt go to church. Thou shalt not swear. And if thou dost swear, thou shalt not use the biggies. And it would be nice if thou didst care for the poor, but if thou can't make sure, thou dost not swear, right? And when this image of God takes root in your life, in my observation, you go one of two ways. You become rule-averse, rule-averse. Some of you have not been in a library for years because you just think of them as unfun. And some of you have left your faith and have even left church. And, And this is your first time back maybe in years because this is the image of God you had. And I don't blame you. I get that. So you become rule averse or you become rule focused like a little librarian. You gauge your own spirituality by how well you keep the rules and you love busting the rule breakers. You love essentially going shh and pointing to the signs. Don't do that. And by the way, not just if you're religious. We live in a culture right now of little librarians. Quick to shush people, quick to punish bad behavior, bad speech, bad thoughts. Well, I kind of started with this image of God, but then I quickly graduated into seeing God as kind of a magic genie, a scary supernatural being that I had to try to please. But if I know the magic words, the genie will give me what I want. The key word here is formula. Deciphering the right formula will get you what you want, the right prayers and the right behaviors and so on. As John Mark Comer points out in his book, usually the formula is something like this, morality plus religious stuff minus sin equals God's blessing. So, for example, when I was a kid obeying my mom plus going to Sunday school minus, you know, swearing the biggies equals God's going to give me what I want next Tuesday, right? Unfortunately, what happens if this is your image of God is you end up angry and confused, right? Asking, why have I done all the right stuff and not done like any of the wrong stuff and I'm still not getting the good stuff? Well, because God's not a genie. And then I moved on from that and saw God as kind of a divine talent judge, like a supersized Simon Cowell. And this is actually the image of God that I was stuck with for a number of decades. My God was all about analyzing my performance and was always hypercritical of my performance. Even as a pastor, I was always wondering, what does God think of my performance? And when this is your God, the key word he whispers is more. Do more. It's not enough. You got to get better. Learn more. Give more. When this is your God, you replace intimacy with activity because you gauge your spiritual life by activity to please the talent judge God. 
and you end up with more and more activity and less and less joy. Well, then finally, in my observation, some people see God as sort of a vague cloud. I read that over 90% of Americans still say they believe in God, but my hunch is if you drill down just a little bit deeper, a lot of that is basically an image of God that they put together that's sort of this vague, amorphous cloud that consists of all kinds of little traits that they put together on their own. A little bit of the grace from this church, the ritual of that church, the mysticism of that religion, the force from Star Wars, right? And that's God. The problem with this is that the key word really is me. Because when you're picking what you like, your God ends up looking just like you. And the problem with that is you don't really grow. Because if God is just like you, then there is no challenge. As John Mark Comer says, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. <laughs> you know, he hates the same people you hate. He voted for the same people you voted for. And his preferred style of church, well, it's the style of church you prefer. But God is not you. And this is so important. A man named Ernest Kurtz, also Swiss. No, I don't know that. I, but it sounds like it could be. But he wrote a history of the 12-step movement. And it's got a great title. It's called Not God. And he points this out. He says, healing and recovery begin with a single realization. I'm not God. I need help from a power greater than myself. For true growth, I need a God who is bigger, different. And in this series, every week we're going to see just how different he is. God is personal. God is different. And finally, God is responsive. Think about it. When Moses said, show me your glory, God does. So, do you dare to pray as we start this series, show me your glory? Maybe you're thinking, but Renee, I feel so unworthy. I don't feel very spiritual right now. I'm a sinner. I feel frustrated. I feel overwhelmed. Exactly where Moses was at. And yet, look how God ministers to him. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, has a great passage. He says, you know, God isn't like you. Even the most intense of human loves is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep that he is, a, listen to this, he's able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. But we need to take those dark miseries to him. And that's what Moses does here. He says, show me your glory. Say that sentence out loud again. Show me your glory. And let me close with this because here's the really powerful thing. The New Testament writer John makes this astonishing statement. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Watch this. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's quoting from Exodus 34. He's saying, when we see Jesus being compassionate and gracious and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin and all of the things that God describes as his glory, we are seeing the most essential part of God's character. So you want a connection to God? It's there in Jesus. You want to know what God is like? It's there in Jesus. As Michael Ramsey, Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, our God is Jesus-like. In him, there is no unchrist-likeness at all. So who wants to see God's glory? Let's come to Jesus right now. Would you pray with me? With our head bowed right now, would you, if this is where you're at, just say out loud with me this simple prayer, show me your glory. Can you say that? Show me your glory. Lord, as we come into this series that's our simple prayer. Say it again. Show me your glory. We come to you longing to see your glory, knowing that we see it in Jesus Christ. God, we want to become like the God we worship. We want to become people of compassion and grace, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining our love to those in our family, forgiving those we know. But God, that's not going to come from us trying harder. It's going to come because we worship a God who is like that. And so we ask that you show us your glory as we investigate these important passages throughout this series. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to invite you to do something a little bit different as we wrap up the series. We're, we're, we're going to give you a chance to sing a closing song in just a moment, but first, I want you to sit and listen to this new song that Trent Smith, our worship pastor, just wrote, and it's really a prayer saying, God, I feel dry. I kind of feel like I'm withering a little bit. So plant my soul deep in your glory so that I can grow. Make these lyrics your prayer as we begin this important series together. Plant my soul, O oh God, like a tree by the riverside. Let my faith grow tall and strong in the strength your grace provides. Plant my soul, O oh God, like a tree by the riverside. Let my faith grow tall and strong in the strength your grace provides. And even in the trial seasons, I 
see.